Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Britt Ray, a human and planetary health postdoctoral fellow at the Stanford Center for Innovation and Global Health, Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment, and London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine's Center on Climate Change and Planetary Health. Ray's research focuses on the mental health impacts of the climate crisis on young people and frontline community members, socio-emotional resilience and capacity building for vulnerable communities, and public engagement for improved mental well-being and planetary health. Ray's first book, Rise of the Necrofauna, The Science, Ethics, and Risks of De-Extinction, was published in 2017. Ray is the creator of the weekly newsletter about staying sane in the climate crisis called Gen Dread, and she is the author of the book, Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis. Ray has hosted several podcasts, radio and TV programs with the BBC and the CBC, and is a TED speaker. On March 8th, 2023, Britt Ray will give a talk, How to Cope with Climate Anxiety, Saving the Earth and Saving Ourselves, as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2022-2023 Criticos Lecturer and part of the Belonging series. Thanks, Britt, so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Paul. It's great to be here. So first, tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, and how you came to do what you do. Sure. I am from Toronto, Canada, born and raised. And I came to do what I'm doing now through a meandering pathway that most likely began with my undergrad being focused on conservation biology, learning about the sixth mass extinction that is caused by anthropogenic forces, and, and caring a whole lot about biodiversity. But I went into becoming a science storyteller, and I worked, as you mentioned, in public broadcasting, creating documentaries and radio shows and things like that, that weave narratives about science society and ethical conundrums that we're presented with based on our advancements in those things. Um, until uh, at the end of finishing a, a PhD in science communication, which is also honing in on these kinds of uh, questions about how we can relate to publics around scientific narratives, I fell into a pretty deep hole of climate anxiety and grief myself in ways that I hadn't experienced before. So, of course, being a science journalist, I was paying attention to popular writing about the climate crisis as a regular part of the beat that I was on and also paying attention to scientific reports or intergovernmental panel on climate change reports that would be coming out. And in 2017, there was a lot of extremely dire writing uh, on the climate crisis, really likening it to a straight shot towards societal collapse, um, not being able to survive even in the shade uh, in many places due to heat waves as the world becomes increasingly uninhabitable because we're not curbing climate emissions, this sort of thing, trying to put it into human terms or galvanize a humanities of global warming, if you will, to make people feel it in their hearts and in their gut rather than just relate to it in terms of graphs of gigatons and science and policy proposals. And while this was meant to be galvanizing and activating, it was also hugely terrifying. And there was the 2018 IPCC report, people might remember about outlining a world at 1.5 versus two degrees of warming and what that would mean in terms of our ability to adapt to all this change which was etched into people's minds of saying, you know, we only have 12 years, so to speak, to avoid climate catastrophe. And we have to have an all out mission now to, to curb all of our carbon pollution. And it, and it 
just wasn't really happening. And so that created a, a public frenzy, which um, unfortunately left a lot of people feeling quite despondent or or fatalistic about the path that we're on. And I got really curious about how the climate crisis is affecting people psychologically. I was feeling rattled myself, but wasn't really noticing the conversation, acknowledging that this, this data carries a variety of challenging feelings with it. And I thought, well, sure, I am questioning such important decisions, um, making future plans around my climate awareness, such as whether or not to have a child, which was my kind of on-ramp on to climate anxiety personally. And I knew that other people were in my age bracket doing the same, but I wondered, you know, what, what are the other psychological impacts that we hardly hear about in a warming world, which, which led me to research the mental health impacts of, of global warming for the book Generation Dread, and then branch out on a multi-year project that that dug into that topic. And it eventually one step leads to the next. And, and I became an academic researcher in the Stanford School of Medicine and investigating what the mental health impacts of the climate crisis are, particularly for young people as a globally distributed vulnerable population. So there's so much that you've told me. <laughs> so let me back up a little bit. So first, let's talk about uh, your PhD in, in uh, science communication. Why is that? Why is that a why is that an important thing to do? Why do we need science communicators? We actually have a an institute at the University of Oregon in science communication in our School of Journalism. Um, why why is that an important thing? Why do we why do we need science communicators? For so long, there has been a kind of deficit model approach to science communication that we've seen for decades, where experts who hold the correct knowledge, so to speak have operated, um, you know, scientists, policymakers, other people who are professional uh, creators of new knowledge about the world have, have acted as though if only the information could be deposited towards the public, as though they're empty vessels that'll simply soak it up and act responsibly on that information, well, then we won't have public health crises, we would handle something like a pandemic really well, you know, we'll be able to do things that are creating and fostering a culture of care for our fellow humans, for other species, and so on and so forth. But we see that it doesn't actually operate that way, right? We get into um, terribly polarized discussions left, right, and center around things that really matter to quality of life, to well-being, to societal functioning that science does weigh in on. And even though there are responsible experts at the table speaking from meticulously gathered data, it doesn't actually get received in that helpful way a lot of the time. And so um, a lot of science communication research has in, in more recent years been unpacking this and saying, why, why does this deficit model not really work? Why does it seem to backfire? Well, you know, the public, uh, is, is a various form of expert in their own life, right? And comes with attitudes and beliefs and biases and, and interests and core values that mean that different people can come to the same scientific data and walk away feeling very differently about what they should be taking from it. And so science communicators need to be savvy about that and understand the power of storytelling, the power of messengers, the power of being trustworthy, all, all things that can captivate audiences and help them to feel more comfortable in a discussion rather than turned off or um, immediately raise their defenses because it 
you know, has triggered off some ideological difference, for instance, that we see in a lot of polarized discussions. So it's really critical that we have research into science communication, into how it flows, how it operates in our in our institutions, in our families, in our wider community, um, especially in these dark days of misinformation. Um, and we can't just naively think that if we if we simply write up the report with peer-reviewed data, that it is going to be happily received. That's that's not the communication culture that we're living in. So I'd say that's that's an aspect, but there's many more reasons too why we need to focus on science communication today. So um, let me also briefly ask you to tell us a tiny bit about your first book, The Rise of the Necrofauna, The Science, Ethics, and Risks of De-Extinction. Can you give us a, like a thumbnail of that, of that project? Yeah, it's basically about a movement of biotechnologists who are trying to recreate close proxies of extinct species. So facsimiles of the woolly mammoth, for instance, or the Tasmanian tiger, or the gastric brooding frog. These these creatures that humans have made go extinct, if we could just somehow clone them or gene edit them in a close enough version that those newly created species could then go back into the wild and fill in ecological holes that have been emptied because of damaging human practices. The idea here is that it might be this synthetic biology uh, boosted biodiversity recuperation tool in the time of the sixth mass extinction. So it's pretty quizzical, it's far out there. It certainly raises a lot of ethical questions um, as well as skepticism about feasibility or whether this is ever a moral thing to consider. However, there are powerful scientists with a lot of clout who are working on this and it, it needs to be examined and looked at um, as part of the portfolio of, of what happens when you bring advanced biotechnologies together with the much older field of, of conservation biology and see what it means for going forth. That's what it's about. Um, so you're, you, um, you're now focused on a different topic uh, the topic of the second book, Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis. And you told us first a little bit about how the prospect of having a child sort of began your shift from doing what you were doing to doing what you do now. Tell us a little bit more about that, how that, how that worked out for you. Yeah, so climate emotions are diverse and they can be comfortable or uncomfortable. I certainly found myself on a part of the spectrum that was that was about contending with very difficult feelings of grief and anxiety and anger around how bad the climate crisis is becoming, how much corporate malfeasance from the fossil fuel industry has um, allowed us to get to this dire point what it means for future generations and how we can try and turn this thing around within the narrow narrowing time frame that we have to make meaningful change and so when i was contemplating with my with my partner whether or not we wanted to try and get pregnant um, back in 2017 and yet facing really really alarmist extremely scary messaging and scientific reports and popular writing about the climate crisis, even though I wasn't myself on the front lines. And I was very privileged uh, to not be so. I found myself facing this dilemma of, you know, I'm one of these hapless 
professionals who focuses on climate and biodiversity issues and, and is distressed by it, you know, and, and I'm not alone in that. When you kind of stare into the abyss of the climate crisis for more than eight hours a day, it tends to be mentally exhausting or carries a psychological toll from bearing witness to climate change and ecological degradation, that sort of thing. And so I became really curious now that I um, am, am provoked to feel these stronger emotions because this decision, which should, should be really um, a, a natural thing that I can answer for myself of, of devoid of a climate crisis that everyone should be able to think about um, devoid of that. It's not really the case. And so uh, in order to help myself come to terms with the way that I was feeling and, and figure out my own decision, I started putting my science communicator brain in on this phenomenon of young people saying that they were questioning having children um, in an increasing climate crisis and getting curious about what this means for mental health writ large, because that's just a teeny tiny sliver of the impacts that the climate crisis is having on mental health. Of course, we've got um, many vulnerable communities that are affected more than others, whether children and young people, indigenous communities, communities on the front lines of disaster, um, those experiencing environmental injustice who are often low income and communities of color, um, people living with disabilities, unhoused people, um, climate and environmental professionals, as I mentioned, who deal with the, the psychological toll of studying this and more. And I became really curious about what are policymakers thinking? Um, are they aware of this? Are they, are they prioritizing it? And how are mental health professionals exploring um, what this means for their field? And then by going out and interviewing many, many dozens of mental health professionals, um, I discovered that they feel largely woefully unprepared to deal with the scope of psychic damage that the climate crisis is causing, you know, acute trauma from disasters all the way to the kind of vicarious trauma of, of um, witnessing things happen in faraway places through the news and feeling a kind of uh, chronic degradation of their sense of security in terms of ego anxiety and things like that. So it was, it was really learning about how much work there is to do here, what a right time it is for opportunities to come together and strategize and come up with more um, hopeful and robust ways of addressing this crisis that was really uh, at that time relatively underexplored uh, that that got me to to invest more journalistically and also from as a researcher in this space but uh, I think often you know this is what can happen is that there's a there's a personal subjectivity that comes into play we get really motivated by something that we are struggling with ourselves and it creates a deeper compassion and a deeper interest for for others and and instead of turning inwards it's about turning outwards and and finding bridges of solidarity uh, with more vulnerable communities that need to be protected because this needs to be a conversation about climate mental health justice, um, not just you know privileged people who are concerned about whether or not to to have kids in a climate crisis. And and that was kind of um, the personal route that I went on. So there are there are a number of key uh, terms that you use when talking about what you argue is the kind of processing that needs to happen uh, to deal with eco-anxiety, eco-grief. Um, 
One of them is emotional intelligence. You talk about the importance of emotional intelligence in this process, and you also talk about the importance of internal activism. Tell us a little bit about what you mean by emotional intelligence and internal activism and how, in your argument, they contribute to a, a, much, a, a much more successful effort to process these uh, stressful emotions that come from eco-anxiety and e the reality of climate change. Sure. So um, just briefly to back up, eco-anxiety has been defined by the American Psychological Association as the chronic fear of environmental doom. And even though it has a clinical sounding name, it isn't currently recognized as a mental disorder. There's no diagnosis for it. And many mental health professionals argue that it's actually a normal, natural response that is commensurate with the real unfolding existential threat. And so it's adaptive to feel it because it points out a difficult reality that we need to mobilize resources around in order to reduce the threat. But it's a very complex and layered phenomenon. Yes, it can move people to action and it can be constructive in that sense, but it can also raise people's defenses and it can make us avoid difficult information or the climate reality altogether. It can push us into denial and it can also cause us to become very fatalistic because it's easier to at least land somewhere that sounds certain, which might be that the apocalypse is coming, you know, the climate crisis is our end of days. And um, there's not much we can do because then you can rest there rather than holding the tension of uncertainty, which the human brain has to do a lot of mental gymnastics to get comfortable with, um, paradoxically, even though it's such a dark kind of unfortunate defense to to weigh into but of course the die is not cast there is a lot that we can do and it's it's this very very powerful crucial moment through which to harness this distress for these kinds of pro-environmental pro-social actions so we need to get better at sitting with the uncertainty and working constructively from there but here's where emotional intelligence comes in because if we aren't aware that that we are, you know, for instance, actually not super rational beings. We're highly irrational. Our, our unconscious <laughs> um, will do many things. Like an impressive cadre of defenses live there to protect us from anxiety and pain. And it can act in these ways leading to avoidance or sticking our head in the sand or soft denial or, or this kind of fatalism to protect the way that we feel in the moment to basically safeguard our ability to feel somewhat comfortable, even at the expense of the future becoming terrifying, because it means that we weigh out from doing anything about safeguarding it. So emotional intelligence involves understanding psychoanalytic approaches, um, this deep human capacity to do anything to avoid distress and discomfort, and the ways that that can trip us up and thwart our ability to act. It means being compassionate with others about their challenges to face the distress um, of the climate crisis, as well as be compassionate with ourselves. It, it means that we need to understand that we can't be perfect in this crisis and that we're all climate hypocrites to a certain degree, and that we don't need a perfect squeaky clean track record in order to be part of solutions and part of a, of a galvanizing climate movement. Um, and that we can accept ambivalence, that none of this is perfect and that our small actions matter, um, even though none of us can really reconcile this crisis as individuals and we need to act as small drops in a tidal wave of change. So um, in these ways, 
it also invites us to process difficult emotions in healthy ways, to lean into that internal activism you were starting to, to get at, which means that we can move away from the kind of positive psychology framing that says some emotions are good and others are bad. This comes from climate aware therapist, Caroline Hickman, who says the climate crisis really invites us to do internal activism and not only the external activism, which we are so used to hearing about, because yes, we need policy change and yes, we need technologies and, and all of that, but we are increasingly being forced to contend with losses that cause grief, that cause depression, that cause anxiety and so on. And um, to be able to flexibly bear that so that we can grow up and down, down into the negative emotions, so to speak, and tolerate them so that as we move forward, we become deeper human beings in the climate crisis. That's really key. And it requires that we don't shame ourselves if we feel climate anxiety, let's say, or grief, but can see, you know, despair and uh, depression are not inherently bad. Um, hope and optimism are not inherently good. In some instances, it might be perverse to be hopeful or optimistic, for instance, and that it can take uh, real courage to admit cowardice. And so when you can have that more accepting way of sitting with the full spectrum of climate emotions, then over time, hopefully you can get curious about the difficult ones that show up, allow them some space, um, and notice what insights they have to carry because it's kind of like that thing we were talking about it a few minutes ago where um, eco-anxiety can be an important navigational tool. It points out what matters to us. It identifies what we care for because we are worried about what's under threat. And so it really is a badge of compassion. And if we can harness that, then we can allow it to direct our actions and not to simply just get shut down by it or burnt out by it or or turn away. But these emotions need to be supported in emotionally intelligent ways, essentially, so that we don't activate all those defenses that are pretty maladaptive. So one of the uh, problems that you mentioned is um, climate grief, the grief over lost species, the grief over lost habitats. And you talk about how that grief is disenfranchised in general. Um, what do you mean by that? And how do we enfranchise our climate grief? Yeah, thank you for the question. So disenfranchised grief is grief that is not recognized. So psychologists have written about this in relation to things like suicides, abortions, miscarriages, fertility issues. It's not that um, people don't recognize the grief within themselves. It's more that we lack social norms to process it. And it can be very difficult to talk about with others and to bring up in any kind of um, codified social setting. We lack rituals for, we, we lack ways of really grappling with it in our language. And so climate grief or ecological grief, which can pertain to real environmental losses already happening now, species going extinct, landscapes that are changing, um, but also anticipatory grief, ideas of knowing that the worst is yet to come and understanding how certain landscapes and species will be affected, for instance, um, but also aspects of our identity, cultural traditions, things that are bound up in a changing world. Um, that might get irrevocably altered. That kind of grief is really also disenfranchised because who's bringing it up at the water cooler at work? Which children are going to school and hearing their teachers talk about it? What dinner parties really invite that talk? 
um, we still largely are in this time of lacking social norms for discussing this kind of emotional reckoning that many people are walking around struggling to recognize within themselves sometimes, not knowing there's language for, and in some case, cases knowing that this is what's going on, but really feeling alienated and isolated and at a loss for other people to talk to about it. And I can't tell you how many hundreds of people I've talked to who have just said the, the most massive thing for them that has helped them process their climate grief is finding others who can validate it, mirror it, legitimize it, and you know, having that container, that safe place with which to voice this and talk about it, as long as the people who are in that container with you don't say, oh, you're just being dramatic or that's just catastrophic thinking or look outside, the sky's not falling, you know, as long as they don't do that, then it starts to be a healing response. Um, being together, emotionally dwelling in the difficulty is a really powerful way to metabolize and move through these difficult emotions. And it's the alienation and the isolation of keeping it bottled up and feeling like you are somehow abject for feeling it at all that makes it so hard to deal with. So ways that we enfranchise the grief are to find those spaces or to find others with which to do this very basic processing work. The interventions are not rocket science. It's really doing what humans do. It's being relational, being supportive, getting together. And because there are so many people voicing a lot of existential despair, anger, anxiety, and so forth about the climate crisis, a whole cottage industry of supports has popped up in recent years for helping people enfranchise this. And it could be a one-off meeting like a climate cafe. These are decentralized meetings happening all over the world where people can come together and have frank conversations about how they're feeling in the climate crisis, how it's showing up in their relationships, their nightmares, their plans for the future, whatever it might be. There's also um, more programmatic approaches, things like the Good Grief Network. They've actually created a 10-step program that's modeled off of Alcoholics Anonymous for moving people through climate distress to a point where at the end of the 10 steps, they are led to reinvest that energy they've been, been tapped out on from being so stressed out into actions that are meaningful and authentic to them. That's a reinvestment process. And, um, or things like Climate Critical Earth, which are providing rest and burnout restoration spaces for climate leaders of color, where these kinds of emotions are legitimized and reframed as well. And, and many other groups, which I'll be talking about um, in the lecture that I give for you next week. So um, there's also climate aware therapy, which is an emerging space of mental health professionals assembled in places like the Climate Psychiatry Alliance and the Climate Psychology Alliances of North America and the UK, whereby a wide variety of mental health professionals are helping people cope better with all of this, whether it's the, the acute trauma from disasters or things that are a bit more at a distance, let's say, and integrate it meaningfully and helpfully and constructively into their life and also take action. Because let's remember that uh, we can't just cope psychologically and self-soothe as the climate crisis gets worse because then the anxiety and the grief will always reappear and get stronger and reinforce the negative impacts it can have on mental health. We need to have real direct interventions that 
get to the the root of the problem and not just kind of band-aid solutions, which means climate action, which means reinforcing our global commitments, which means finding out how to personally adapt based on the location that we're living in as we try to mitigate more harm, but also uh, protect ourselves with the harm that's already baked in and that we have to learn to adapt to. So all of this really comes together, um, but but starts with just finding other people to talk to about it. That's the the initial entryway into to getting towards some solutions. So Britt, um, we're almost at the end of our time. This will be my last question. So the, the last part of your journey is you've become an academic researcher. So you're a human and planetary health postdoctoral fellow at the Stanford Center for Innovation and Global Health, Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment, and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine Center on Climate Change and Planetary Health. What do you do? there. <laughs> what, is, what, what is your job as a postdoctoral fellow? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm involved in a variety of research projects investigating the mental health impacts of the climate crisis on young people and emerging adults. I'm co-developing interventions with frontline communities to support them with the emotional toll of, for instance, dealing with hurricane after hurricane in Louisiana and what kinds of supports they want and how communities can come together through peer support networks to, to raise resilience. I am informing policy, uh, trying to translate our research findings into policy briefings and consultations with politicians, ministers, things like that, uh, to prioritize the mental health impacts of the climate crisis in, in the policymaking underway. And then, um, yeah, moving into a new position soon in the Department of Psychiatry at Stanford to lead a brand new initiative that the university is starting on climate and mental health to try and take all this further and and really help re-educate um, mental health professionals and provide them with the tools to equip them to bring that climate lens into the work that they're doing. Well, Britt Ray, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's really been great speaking with you, and we're really looking forward to your visit next week. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be coming. Good to talk with you. I've been speaking with Britt Ray, author of Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis. On March 8th, 2023, Britt Ray will give a talk, How to Cope with Climate Anxiety, Saving the Earth and Saving Ourselves, as the Oregon Humanity Center's 2022-23 Criticos Lecture and part of our Belonging series. Thanks so much for watching.